I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We've had apocalypses here, and we've maintained languages through that. Even when everybody gets wiped out, there's another tribe that holds all that and will bring the law back to that place and can regrow the system. So we have this anti-fragile network that depends on everybody's business all the time, maintaining relations, you know, with land, language, culture, people, place, time. It's real hands-on governance practice that requires every person to be involved. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I reckon I've been trying to connect with today's guest for, well, a few years now, just as I give up on our mad scheduling efforts. Up His Name pops again in some inspired academic or pop cultural discussion or podcast. A few weeks ago, a guest here on Wild, Douglas Rushkoff, the cyberpunk who talked rap and fire about billionaire preppers, referred to him as his favourite thinker. And so it got me following up on the email chain again. Okay, so I'm talking about Tyson Yunkaporta. Tyson is a member of the Apalek clan in far north Queensland and is an Aboriginal scholar and founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University in Melbourne. And he wrote the mind-blowing book Sand Talk, the subtitle being How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, which pretty much sums up what we'll be talking about in this episode. Sand Talk has sometimes been described as an exercise in reverse anthropology, Rather than looking at Indigenous knowledge systems and practices from a Western perspective, Tyson flips it all around and examines the Western world and all its disconnects, its force-fitted ideologies and cult-like thinking from an Indigenous perspective. It's a mind-blowing way to pull apart most of the themes we discuss here on WILD, such as the climate crisis, AI, conspiracy theories, neoliberalism, wokeness, inequality, loneliness – You know, all the complexities, which we insist on navigating with a simplify and conquer mindset in our culture. This is often called the metacrisis, and you might have heard it referenced here on previous episodes. The metacrisis is the original or overlaying crisis of not being able to fathom, explain, and importantly, fix all of the crises. It's a crisis of not being able to navigate the complexity So how can Indigenous knowledge save the world as per the subtitle of Sand Talk? Well, apologies to Tyson as I paraphrase his book. Indigenous knowledge can save us by virtue of it being calibrated to complexity, working in congruence with the various laws of thermodynamics, which acknowledges the vast, interconnected and ever-changing ways of the world. By contrast, Western thought has, over centuries, come to reject the natural laws of the universe and overlay a linear simplification where we, the individual, sit at the centre of the perspective and worldview for reasons we'll get to in the conversation. Indigenous cultures referred to this way of being and thinking as a curse or emu energy. It's narcissism, they say, out of check. Now, I will issue a word of anticipation, not warning as such. Tyson's ideas, as you might expect, operate outside standard ways of thinking, 
although increasingly they're being picked up by various new schools of economic and social theory, as I said, they provoke and toss up confronting questions about existing financial structures of language systems or pretty much the fundamentals of how we in the Western patriarchal system operate. And so his way of speaking does too, which is refreshing, but it's also very, very challenging. You'll see what I mean shortly. But Tyson is deliberate about this. He takes us into the complexity rather than allows us to seek safety in a heady, rational, external observer perspective. Because this is the place, the mindset he's talking about, the one that might save the world, the one that is uncomfortable and can feel like chaos. Laughing and jokes are also a big part of Tyson's speaking style. As he explains in his books, jokes and crazy metaphors play a role in creative spark, the creative spark of Indigenous knowledge sharing. In his book, he explains what goes on at a neural level when you tell jokes. He also argues that joking through a discussion is actually the best way to problem solve, and this is well recognised in his culture. And I'll add to this, entirely in keeping with his thesis, Tyson goes back on his ideas constantly because, as he will share, everything is in a state of change, right? We also cover off some galaxy brain type stuff. So the intellectual dark web, the IDW, for instance. For those of you not familiar with this term, I feel I need to sort of set you up for this conversation because we do cover it. It's a collection of thinkers who call themselves sort of heterodox. That is, they think outside or beyond the normal status quo thinking that's going around at the moment. They're even questioning the way that we communicate. In this realm, we're talking about Jordan Peterson, the Weinstein brothers, who wound up going down really big conspiracy death spirals and and been very vocally anti-vaccination. And it's a podcaster, Sam Harris, who has since distanced himself from the intellectual dark web. As Tyson explains, these people, he feel, have fallen victim to the same sickness that plagues the world, the world in a grip of a metacrisis. Finally, Tyson has a bunch of kids and two of them were with him on the morning that we recorded this conversation. And, and he explained that one has autism and the other has, has ADHD. And they'd all been up since 4am, as had I coincidentally. And he said to me that this is just who he is and how he has to operate in the world at the moment. He said he finds that a lot of the podcasts that he does don't get published because of the kid noises that come as part of the package that he is. So I committed to running this podcast episode no matter what. So there are kid squeaks. However, Stefan, my Uber producer, will do his best to edit them out and tone them down. But if part of the exercise of absorbing the knowledge of Indigenous thinking is to get uncomfortable, well, I guess it was all pretty perfect in the crazy complexity of the grand scheme of things. So if I can issue a bit of an invite here, please do stick with the conversation to the end and understand my decision not to rein it in too much and perhaps even observe in yourself what comes up if you do get uncomfortable as I did. I came out of this conversation feeling that this is the actual point. Okay, to Tyson. Welcome finally to Wild, Tyson Yonkaporto. It's so wonderful to have you here with your kids in the background. Yeah, it's that's just my life. I'm, I'm always looking after these kids. Well, look, I think listeners, we can ride with that. There's a lot of people out there with kids, so... I think we've made an agreement just to like, let's just push on through and everybody will have to enjoy the sound of kids playing in the background. Why don't you tell us what you are working on at the moment? Like you have covered all kinds of topics and I know you have niche interests predominantly through the Indigenous knowledge framework, but yeah, I, I have no idea what you're working on at the moment. I'm working on the final edits for this this next book. I'm really grateful. Like everybody hates editing and editors, but with Sandtalk, like... You know, they took out a whole heap of stuff that at the time, like I was, I don't understand why they want to take this out, but I'm really, really happy because I was watching a lot of Russian propaganda at the time and there were <laughs> there was bits of it. I had like a whole chapter on Gaddafi. About six months later when I like woke up from that Russian propaganda fever dream, I, I was like, oh man, I'm really glad they took that out. You got a bit red pill, did you? Oh, totally. Look, I, there's even chemtrail stuff in Sand Talk if you look close enough. It's, it's a real uh, conspiracy-driven guru discourse 
kind of tracked sand talk you know i i had to read it out loud for the audio books like a couple of times yeah isn't that painful i think i think a lot of people liked it because they were a bit pilled too you know and <laughs> so off they went but um i read it now and i cringe that was a real thing in the Indigenous community, wasn't it? There was certainly an element of that, of the conspiracy theory stuff, right? That's the whole next book. The whole next book is just basically about disinformation. It's called uh, uh, Right Story, Wrong Story. You know, not many people really sort of noticed how much it was impacting our communities. But as I started studying it about three years ago, I started getting really disturbed about... Um, particularly the rise of the sovereign citizen movement from the United States yeah. over here in the Indigenous community and how that had kind of ended up co-opting the last of the diehard land rights sort of warriors, you know, because um, everyone sort of was all native title, native title and, you know, reconciliation, you know, truth, treaty voice, all these things. And then, um, you know, but there's a lot of people holding on to no. We don't want title for the natives. We don't want a few people to tell the truth. We want that land back. And uh, so there was a lot of people still holding on to that. And then all of a sudden, we got infiltrated by this sovereign citizen movement, which is like this sort of, I don't know, Harry Potter magic. You know, you step up in court and go expelliarmus and then they can't <laughs> convict you or something. And, and it was really troubling and it was getting mixed in with a whole heap of other stuff. Yeah, I, th I think it's. I find it really interesting just that whole idea of the sovereignty movement, which almost goes against so much of what Indigenous knowledge works to, which is understanding complexity through the collective. And the sovereignty movement is so uh, perfectly aligned with the individualism paradigm once you actually dig down into it. Yeah, you know, it's very much about individual sovereignty and... I am a free man on the land, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. It's like every person is a sovereign, you know, um, entity mm -hmm. unto themselves. It's very neoliberal, you know, <laughs> weirdly. Yeah, I, I don't think people realise how individualised it's become, you know, because as neoliberal subjects, we're all these self-managing sort of entities. You know, we do all, all our own branding where basically each of us is a is, a, is an entity unto us, a sovereign entity unto ourselves, like we're a little corporation. That, that, and I don't know, it's, it's affected the way people inhabit a politics of identity, you know, and a politics of, you know, um, post-colonial action, et cetera, et cetera. It buys straight into it in, in many ways. And, I, and it's really what you cover off in Sand Talk. And really the big reason I wanted to talk to you, Tyson, is because of your work examining Western thinking like this, mm. Western systems and the world from an Indigenous perspective that embraces complexity rather than imposing artificial simplification over the top of the big, heaving, chaotic behemoth that is life, you know. And this has become a, a really big area. It's, it's um, stuff that I cover on Wild on a regular basis. We're becoming aware that these aren't just a bunch of isolated crises, you know, the climate crisis, um, AI, nuclear threat, um, pandemics. Instead, we have a, a clusterfuck, right, of all the crises. And what's been identified is this idea of a metacrisis, you know, it's this the all of itness, and then also our inability to cope with the complexity, and yet we still impose these simplified notions over the top of it. So I thought, you know, maybe a really good spot to get people to catch up on all of this is talking patterns, you know, in the universe. And I think you write in the book, there is a pattern to the universe and everything in it, and there are knowledge systems and traditions that follow this pattern to maintain balance. So would you be cool to explain I suppose some of these issues and how it works to this idea of patterning and the fact that we're ignoring these patterns or we've we've forgotten how to observe them and understand them and interpret them. Yeah, well, I don't know. Like for novices, like a lot of people looking to try and recover sort of some way of, um, you know, having a cognition and a consciousness and a spirituality and a uh, governance, economy, everything else that is more land-based, you know, with people who are novices to this way of being, you know, I, I tend to sort of try and take them through different layers of knowledge. You know, when people start out, it's just like spotting the nodes in the system, like going, oh, you know, fuck me, a black cockatoo. 
okay, oh, that happened last October, starting to see the things, starting to see, okay, those ants, all the ants everywhere are climbing the wall. You know, why are they going up? Um, you know, you just spot the nodes and you see what the nodes are doing. So, you know, so animals, plants and their behaviours, you know, so you're, you're seeing the things. And I guess the next step up from there, once you start asking the questions about like, oh, okay, so when those ants are going up to high ground and they're all carrying eggs, you know, what tends to happen later that day or like the next day, you know? Um, okay, I'm seeing a pattern here. You know what I mean? So what they start to see at that second level is uh, relationships. So these are time and place relationships, but then also symbioses between the different species, you know. So they're seeing those worms, you know, crawling along the ground and then noting that's at different times and then how that connects with other different species and then what, what you know, all these things, these interrelationships that happen. Then once you stop focusing on the bright points of the nodes and then the sort of connective lines of the relationships, you know, you kind of let that fade back. Then you start to see the patterns that are made, you know, by those relationships across an entire system. So you start to see the patterns of relation. And that's far more difficult. You know, it requires quite a big, uh, you know, cognitive shift that involves like a, you know, the thinking feeling. And it involves you being in the system too, you know. Yeah, you have to be part of it and you have to be a node in the system that's responding to the system, you know, to the things that are happening there and all the movements and forces and, you know, everything else. Uh, you have to be really here in country to start to see pattern. And you see the pattern when you're moving with it, you know. If you're not, then, I mean, you, you can't do it by standing on the hill and watching the fireflies dance. You won't see the pattern. You've got to be in it amongst it, moving with it, you know. And then noticing, once again, what the ants are doing, yeah. you know, uh, what else is mating at that time. And, and then sort of, okay, what do I do at that time? And then you're in there, you know. And that's that's the pattern mind stuff. And it's really hard to do because you know, a lot of the scientific method, it demands that you stand outside of the system and be the observer, you know, of that system, you know, that this godlike kind of thing and that you're not making any of the data dirty <laughs> by being in amongst it. Yeah. And, it's, and it works to this idea that there's a closed system that can be observed rather than, you know, you're within the infinite system of all the complexities. The closed system piece is such a big part of Western thinking. Another big thing that you reference in the book, and it's obviously Indigenous knowledge, so it's something that you're sharing with us, is that so much of this learning to view patterns, to understand patterns, was all about keeping narcissism in check in cultures. And that was a really big part of Indigenous thinking is this narcissism piece. And I guess if you're talking about consciously belonging to systems and you're looking at this sort of egocentric desire to create closed systems which gives rise to entropy always you know one system's waste is another system's lunch etc etc you know you're supposed to have these regenerative loops going on all the time so when you start to try and close one system off and then try to create a little infinite growth engine out of it you know you're kind of fooling yourself this idea that you're creating something immortal, you know, because it kind of winds down and it tends to kill everything around it. You know, it takes a, an incredible amount of willful ignorance to do that and, and a sort of stubbornness. And, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of that arrives. Like when, when we look in our old law to try and find, man, what's the source of all this? It's like, yeah, narcissism is the best word. And, and you know, you find that narcissism is always there. That, that it's actually part of creation. So, you know, we don't have like a religion that tells us, hey, yeah, everything was perfect. And then like one person ruined it all, <laughs> you know, um, because, you know, those actors, those bad actors, that's there, they're responding to a seed that is part of creation, that seed of narcissism. And I believe it's there and it has a purpose, you know, if you've got perfect regenerative patterns just running all the time without disruption, then you are just replicating the same pattern over and over again. And that, that's entropy <laughs> as well. 
you know, if you photocopy something and then take a photocopy of that and take a photocopy of that and you keep going, eventually it's just going to be nothing, you know, a, a fuzzy page of nothing. You know, it's the same thing here. So mm. I, I guess the narcissism is there, you know, and, it, and it's not just in humans, it's in animals who demonstrate selfish behaviors as well. It's supposed to be there, that narcissism. All our old stories, like uh, like I talk about our emu story and sand talk. Look, and I should say that's very subjective for me because um, I've got Brolga totem and, you know, Brolga and emu don't get along. So all of our Brolga clan stories, it's always, you know, disinformation about emu. <laughs> so we got this anti-emu propaganda. It's like, <laughs> no, it's them. They were greedy. They were selfish and jealous. And they did this, you know, they stole all the eggs. And so even in Western Australia, that sort of, um, that one there, you know, that emu, he's can't worry, he's crazy. Like, you know, at the moment of creation when everyone was becoming real and they were trying to decide which species was going to be the custodial species of the planet, you know, the emu was like, you really wanted to be boss. And, you know, look how fast I can run. I'm the boss. I've got to be the boss. And I just kicked up dust and, and kind of wrecked the meeting, you know. So that, that meant things started badly. So when mm-hmm. man and woman were chosen to be the custodians, there was impetus and they kind of, so they left the fire and they hadn't really finished the meeting. They didn't really know what they were doing because they hadn't reached a consensus. And so they went their separate ways and went around and just damaged things until they figured out uh, <laughs> the right way to do things in creation. So, you know, all creation, like, Creation stories, you see there's always this seed of narcissism there that's part of the story. And we have this different orientation to justice, though. So when a person transgresses based on that, it's not like the end of the world. They're not in jail forever or they don't get executed or, um, you know, anything like that. It's like you, you take that punishment, which is supposed to grow you up and make you learn, and then you, um, you know, everybody learns from that in the community and then everyone goes forward stronger together. And then that's forgotten for that person. So emus are really revered entity and totem, you know, as well. And particularly the male emus are a symbol of nurturing because they, the males are the ones that sit on the eggs and raise the chicks and all that kind of thing, you know. So, um, you know, there's positive stuff there too. What I take from it is that Indigenous knowledge is built in many ways around tempering that emu energy, the emu idiocy. Narcissism will always exist and needs to exist for the bunch of reasons that you've explained. But we need these sort of cultural understandings to temper it. And all cultures had processes and practices, sort of moral gatekeepers. And Indigenous knowledge was very, very vigilant around this. What I'd love you to speak to next, if you're able to, is, we and we touched on it a moment ago, you talked about what we might want to call natural law, this sort of way the world works in, in these systems, these complex systems rather than closed systems. And there's this natural flow. And yet Western thinking likes to contravene all of these physical laws that we respect, like the law, the various laws of thermodynamics. And we we impose on top of all of this linear time, linear thinking. And I know that you've said many times before, you know, Indigenous languages don't have a word for for linear because it just doesn't exist. You know, there's only an understanding of this vast meandering path of knowledge and, and life. So how, looking at it from the Indigenous point of view, how did the Western world end up so fixated with linearity? How did it become so unchecked? Is it unchecked narcissism? When did this separation occur and uh, why are we so wedded to it? I guess it's just a matter of scale. You know, you can't scale a community up beyond what the land needs from a community. You know, you can't form a sedentary civilization and, um, and grow it and scale it and scale it and scale it without, without a lot of checks and balances in place. You need that linearity of time. You need to be able to control the story of the past so that people feel like they're progressing in the present and that there may be a great and glorious future ahead. So you need it just for compliance for a start, but then also just um, just for, I mean, you look at all the people in the world, all the world leaders, all the people who have their position through no merit at all and who just haven't done the work and they don't do the reading, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're being mm. very nonlinear. Oh, no, I'm very creative. <laughs> I'm a creative person, me. 
I don't think in linear ways. I'm more like, you know, indigenous kind of thought. I meander through. And it's usually it's just people being lazy and like asserting whatever random shit the ego throws up at them from moment to moment, you know. And so off they go. You know, governance governance is all about a push-pull. has to be a push-pull between, you know, your desire to assert yourself as a, a fabulous individual in the world, but then also your collective you know, relations and accountabilities and obligations. There has to be a tension between those things all the time, which is probably another reason for the the need for that seed of narcissism, because otherwise you end up with a hive mind and everything becomes regimented and then just, uh, you know, collapses in on itself. You can't have just collective mind and communal mind. Um, so this is this is how it works. You know, it's um, it's really important to have that that balance between individual need and, and group, you know, and communal need, uh, and that's that's kind of the core of the engine that drives good governance. Yeah, I guess I guess my my point or my question is around the idea that I think so many of the issues today are stemming from a lack of checking, a lack of balance, you know a lack of balancing these narcissistic individualistic urges. And so, so many, I mean, let's count all the things, you know, this centralised thinking which has created a whole range of setups that mean that there's this supply, demand, capitalist kind of concept that necessarily works to inequities. It's an imbalance. We've got all, I mean, we've got to a point now where, the individualism and narcissism, and by narcissism, you know, what we mean is this idea that I'm the centre of the universe, I'm the most important thing, I'm more important than nature, I'm more important than the systems, I'm more important than the collective. It's got out of control. And so we now have this point where we've got cancel culture and we've got the intellectual dark web arguing off against woke culture and backwards and forwards and everybody's wanting to be a victim. So it, it really is about incredible lack of balance and all the checks and balances that used to be there the west has got rid of those and so yeah and and ironically in the process has become quite non-linear but chaotically non-linear not like uh, you know what i mean not in a systems way non-linear and there's a difference you know it just means that you can pass off logical fallacies all the time as as good thinking and there'll be a lot of people who will follow you and like you on it. You know, there'll be a lot of people who will vote for you. So, you know, and it seems like you're doing, you know, really good analysis, you know, to people just generally in the world. And, ah, well, you know, look, I'm, I'm thinking really creative and not, you know, hey, let's just look at Sweden. Do we want to become Sweden? You know, we need to secure our borders because look at Sweden. Sweden like in- increased its yeah. immigration. Well, let's be nonlinear and look at the other things that happened at the same time as the immigration of like Muslims into Sweden was increasing. What else increased? Oh, rapes. The rape of white women increased at that time as well. Isn't that interesting? You know, <laughs> and so, so basically, it's the most linear thing of all because they have their end goal. They're not like you know doing good inductive reasoning or anything like that. They're just going straight to find the things they need to get to the point they want. So then, of course, there's a massive populist Mm. response to that, you know, and a big moral panic around, oh, my God, these white women are going to be, like, all raped by these brown people. We can't have this. And nobody's looking, okay, what else happened at that time? Oh, there was a change in the law in Sweden that if somebody commits multiple rapes, that's not just recorded as one rape. All right, so if you rape a minor 36 times, then that's 36 rapes, not just one rape. So they changed <laughs> they ch- they changed the law. And so, of course, that same year, the figures skyrocketed, you know. But there's so much to look at at the same time <laughs> with all of that. You have to have yeah. quite a big sort of pattern running in order and, and to really immerse yourself in that system to be able to understand it. And why are you looking at Sweden in the first place? You know, you got kids getting shot. Mm-hmm. Take take a moment. Be where you are. So a lot of people like go with this laissez-faire idea. You know, a free market, let the chips fall where they may, and like, you know, the marketplace, the invisible hand will sort it out because it's magic. Can I pause for a moment, Tyson? I just want to bring a couple of these themes that you've brought up and I've brought up together a little bit, just for people who are listening, because. Really, a big part of this complexity stuff means talking in a language that can meander and it's not linear. I 
it's the whole point. It's been in amongst the nodes, as you say. But the way I see it is that, look, the world's always been complex. And I think Indigenous knowledge and knowledges like which, you know, Western thinking stemmed from originally really were about finding congruence with this complexity in and through the laws of nature, you know. And so we lived a lot more in communion with these ebbs and flows, the uncertainty, the chaos and all of that kind of thing. And at some point for various reasons, and it was, you know, building one theory, building on another, we really got into this idea of this linear beginning, middle and end, which produced capitalism, neoliberalism, a whole range of different isms. And it was sort of an instance of narcissism, putting the, the individual ahead of the collective and just swinging out that balance. So we lost track of the patterns that would balance out the narcissism. And so narcissism has been reigning supreme. But now as we face these meta crises, the clusterfuck of all of the things, the complexity has got to a point where we're going, oh my God, the linear thing, the linear paradox is kind of, you know, super imposing this false idea onto reality, it's kind of not cutting it anymore. So people, the bros in Santa Fe and Silicon Valley and, you know, Rogan and so on, they're really trying to, you know, muck around with complexity theories and integral theories and systems theories to try to kind of find a better way to work out of this sense-making community. They're, They're playing around with the language. I mean, it just seems to yeah, it seems to make things even more clusterfucky. But um, and so yeah, it's it's sort of funny, isn't it? We're in this really interesting time in history where we've tried to simplify the complexity. Now we're trying to unsimplify it, but we can't yet break free of the old ways, can we? We're still applying that narcissism to the same old stuff. Yeah, and look, I, I think it's quite simply because a lot of the information that we get is, is sort of packaged in a way that's supposed to be a bit like heroin. And you get, you know, your pleasure centers go off or your outrage centers go off and you get pleasure from that or whatever. And I just yeah. kind of think it snuck up on everybody. You know, like I said, we've got we've got anti vaxxers you know, influencing on YouTube and stuff right now. We've got like uh, like I said before, that sovereign citizen movement, that is freaking huge. Like I don't think people really quite understand the scope of that. You know, so it's we're not immune to it here, you know. Um and it's important mm. to know that these things are designed, right? They haven't just arisen out of the intellectual dark web. The intellectual dark web didn't just bloody, you know, evolve yeah. or emerge, you know, out of complexity. A, a lot of these things are funded by by dark money. You know, it's 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 very easily traceable, all this stuff, you know, to a handful of billionaires around the planet or anyone who's a billionaire like just they get to manipulate the system in a way that in the end they just want to make sure that they never ever ever have to pay tax or contribute anything they want to make sure that they get to keep all their shit and take more shit and that's all there is to it and it's like you know and they've been doing it since forever like the first messages of the printing presses were like you know Catherine the great is 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 fucking horses she's having sex with animals was that just a, like an emergent meme? Was it organic? Like, no. The powerful was spreading those rumors because she was trying to end the, the feudal system. You know, and they were like, stuff that. We, we like this feudal system. This is where our power comes from and this is how we get all our rents. Anyway, so off it went. And it seemed like it was grassroots and it was just like the everyman, like pamphleteering around the place, bloody reporting on this. You know, so, so shitposting has been happening forever. Yeah. I mean, we see it today with the big fossil fuel industries planting slogans and ways of seeing things. All all the big corporates, you know, they plant just a single slogan that we stick with, you know. Sugar's natural. Gas is natural, you know. I guess it's not particularly new, but I think the point is, and if we were to define contemporary culture today or life today, the complexity is catching up with us and the disconnect between the way that we try to capture it, explain it, and the actual real world, it's becoming untenable. And I don't know, I sort of almost want to jump ahead and this is sort of a juncture where I'm really interested in your thinking around this. I don't know if it emerged post-SAN talk, but I think you do write about it in here as well. I've I've heard you talk about existential risk and it's, it's almost like you don't want to step in and interfere with where 
the humans are taking this big experiment. We seem to be hurtling in a very particular direction. And, you know, regardless of, you know, where you think existential risk sits at, whether it's one in six or a 50% chance of wipeout at the end of the century and so so on. But the interesting bit that I take from it, you talk about moving your area of service and interest to what you call the 1,000-year cleanup. Could you talk a little bit to that? And I know that you quote an, an Indigenous American academic and you refer to the sort of post-apocalypse stress syndrome, that it takes about a century for a culture to recover from, you know, some really existential stuff, whether it's the Black Plague, whether it'll be a mass depression, that kind of thing. But, yeah, I'd love you to talk about this idea of focusing on the 1,000-year cleanup and the idea of, you know, these new systems of transition. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, well, look, I mean, once again, it's it's hard to separate our right story and wrong story in there, you know, because how did I arrive at that 1,000-year thing? I was consulting a lot of elders, and they were all saying, like, it'll take a 1,000 years, you know. But you mentioned apocalyptic stress, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic stress syndrome, and apocalyptic is the key word there because, you know, most of the religions on the planet at the moment are like rapture ideologies, <laughs> you know, and they all—they're all looking forward to this glorious time where the slate will be wiped clean, and and the believers will be raptured up, and that will be their glorious moment. So this is why everybody seems to be like, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing towards this chaos and this like, no, you know, the institutions must fall, yeah. the whole thing must burn. You know, it's like they're trying to make this apocalypse happen. The billionaire preppers as well. I know that you've spoken to Douglas Rushkoff. Like there's this almost desire for the apocalypse to happen. I'm finding it really interesting that you're seeing this desire to see an apocalypse as happening across a number of different fields. Because, I mean, it's multiple religions yeah. and multiple yeah. sects, you know, yeah. like a, most of the dominant sects. Of, of religious thought and spiritual thought on the planet at, at the moment they, they seem to have this thousand year figure so i'm like hang on did the elders who told me a thousand years and who calculated that out you know for, for how long it would take to grow back and and uh, quite a few really good thinkers who are very much informed by the landscape like uh, victor stephenson who's the author of fire country he understands that all the the burning off sort of thing and all the complexities of that and of country and land and he says it's a thousand years as well so i keep hearing this and i i kind of took it on faith from elders of the thousand year thing so i don't know and while i was exploring all that and trying to calculate and be in that system and arrive at an understanding of what it takes to arrive back at homeostasis you know what's it what what does it take to do that i wasn't arriving at a thousand years like over and over but i started using it as a meme anyway i started saying thousand year cleanup Mostly because I get positive feedback from people when I say that. You've just reinforced it for me, so I'll probably say it again because I'm like, I get a little rush of like, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, a thousand year cleanup, I made up that. That's my word. Ah, boss of that one. You know, and then off goes the emu. But, um, you know, it's it's these rapture ideologies, I think. And I, I wonder it, at what point did, did I get pilled into that rapture ideology from my elders, you know? Um, or 
or you know from multiple multiple places or did i actually arrive at it organically i can't trust my own information at the moment you know I love your honesty around that. I mean, it makes you a very difficult interviewee at times because you try to go, hey, you said this, extrapolate, and then you go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm actually questioning where I got that from. But look, the bit that I'm interested in is really the idea of not focusing on this notion of the existential risk and whether or we will or we won't make it, right? You're actually moving ahead, whether it's a 1,000 years. You, you talk a lot about, I mean, I'll, I'll pull out a quote from your book. Rather than fighting brand wars to make this doomed globalising system feel more fair and inclusive, you know, so trying to fix all the problems within the system, right? You know, this is what we're trying to do. You rep- can see some seeds of anti-woke sort of starting to come through there, yeah? All right, keep going. Yeah, yeah, I can I can hear that a bit. We might instead develop some new systems of transition. I can hear IDW there too. But I'm going to bring you back. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to really tether you down to this idea of emergence, focusing on emergence, focusing on this period that's yet to come, that some some stuff is going to happen, whether we think it's apocalyptic or not, but there's almost this sort of point at which our lack of balance, our forgetting, our unremembering of how patterns work is, is you know, is going to come, you know, from a period of, of maintenance. We're, we're entering into a destructive process at the moment. I'd say we're in the middle of it or at least starting out that sort of part of the trifecta of the way life works. And eventually we're going to have to go back into creation again. But yeah, this idea of fostering the conditions for emergence, the next phase, the, the 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 space that we're going to be in as and when things get pretty hard. What's that looking like? What are you committing to there? What does it mean a thousand years or otherwise, the cleanup? What is this cleanup? I, I think it's a it's a rediscovery for people of of a relation and a set of relations, a system of relations within a, a bigger relation with place and time. It's going to be about people mm. coming into their place more and understanding their place, but then also sort of seeing that you know their bioregion is being networked in with with a lot of surrounding bioregions to create a sort of uh, you know interdependence at the local level, but then that also needs to scale you know out to like big webs of relations between different groups. And look, what's exciting about that is that that is in our law. You know, we have that. We have names for mm. these different kinds of law. You know, we have names for the law and the governance of yourself individually within your your kin relations. You know, we have names for that. Then that next level of clan and region, like your section of the river for your language group or your, you know, bioregion there, that law has a name, you know, different names in all of our languages. And you have to be constantly in a state of embassy within your own individual set of governance relations, but then also in these increasingly wider circles. You know, as your as your knowledge and authority increases, you have to be more and more maintaining these sets of relations. It's the reason why, you know, we have so many, if you look at the Aboriginal map of Australia, so many small tribes and, and a massive multiplicity of languages, you know, here that's just startling yeah. compared to the monolingual places elsewhere. It's because there were no empires because we had this fractal governance structure in place. Because then that next one, that next big level, that big Hunan law that goes right across sunrise, sunset dreaming, you know, that's the one where where it's at a continental scale, you know, of governance, uh, where we travel, you know, yep. maybe a thousand miles, you know, for ceremony with these other groups and that far-flung tribes will will exchange and they'll hold our most sacred law there and a knowledge of our culture and, and language and then exchange that and someone else will hold theirs. So there's this kind of, I don't know, it, it you've entrusted another group with your most sacred law and all your stories and, you know, everything, your language. So you've entrusted that with them. So you can't kill them all at a later point. You know what I mean? Because they're holding that. And you, your tribe is holding the law of other tribes as well. And this is important because this is a sustainable pattern. Because volcanoes freaking happen. We've got them in our stories. We've had apocalypses here, you know, 
many apocalypses have happened in Australia and we maintain languages, you know, even in those regions where the apocalypse has happened, we maintain the languages through that. But that, 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 even when everybody gets wiped out, there's another tribe that holds all that and will bring the law back to that place and can regrow the system. So we have this anti-fragile network that depends on everybody's business all the time being ritual business of maintaining relations, you know, with land, language, culture, people, place, time, and time and place being the same thing pretty much, you know. Um, it, it's it's huge. It's, it's a massive thing, but it requires, re, I mean, it's real hands-on governance practice that requires every person, you know, to be involved as an individual sovereign being who is also at the same time so bound by relational obligations that they can't hmm. really do any damage with that power that they carry as a sovereign being, you know, because there are layers of sovereignty that keep going out and out and out in infinite circles of interdependent relations. And that's the metaphysics yeah. of a governance that works. And that's the thing that people just do. You know, as a species, we do that when we're left to our own devices. We go back to that and we will. Yeah, we do. We do have a longing for it and we have a remembrance of it. You know, if we think about COVID again, as soon as we got to a feeling of, you know, shit's hitting the fan, we return to that communal thinking. We get so much joy from it. You call it creative spark when there's this congruency, you know, in knowledge and connecting around the same sort of things and, and, and connecting in with nature. That's And I think for, if I can, if I'm reading what you're saying correctly, you know, or in some kind of truth, it's sort of building this sort of interdependence muscle, being familiar with all of this, being in amongst the nodes that then gets us sort of to, a, to an anti-fragile space where dealing with the complexity that's ahead is going to be a little bit more doable. We're going to be in it and working our way through it. I would, though, really love you to pick up on this idea of fostering conditions for emergence. Is that what you're talking about there or is there more to emergence? Can you sort of speak to this idea of emergence? Emergence is a sentient system organizing itself. You know what I mean? Um, cancer is an emergence. Your body is, is a sentient, self-aware system that's organizing itself. You know, emergence is neither good nor bad. You know, systems sit within systems. And your system, the, the one that you're in, just absolutely depends on the health of the other systems around you. And of those, you know, symbioses, you know, operating at full efficiency, you know, if that's not going on, you're pretty much stuffed. That's when the entropy gets you. So emergence, yeah, emergence is just how things work. You know, emergence is just how things come in with that, that of creation, you know. You, you, you get that pattern, you get that frequency. You know, emergence is what, it always swings back to until creation is finished, you know. And I don't know if that can ever really fully be broken, you know. Yeah, I witness, I've heard different speeches over the years and different um, Indigenous elders and spokespeople talk with this incredible sort of acceptance, an acceptance that I haven't come across elsewhere about, for instance, the climate crisis and the other crises. There's this almost like sitting back and watching an unfurling that seems to be just needing to do its yeah, thing. You can see why I was so vulnerable to all these stoics. <laughs> you wanting to stake some certainty in the ground? Is that what you mean? No, no, no. Just just that cultural um, propensity for, you know, acceptance, acceptance yeah. of the reality that is actually happening instead of like holding onto these hopes and, and longings for something that was and is rooted and things have changed, you know, like it's like we don't have that. We have this radical acceptance, you know, of whatever the circumstances are and of moving with the system, you know, healthy or not, of moving with that system and, and, and changing, adapting, but maintaining continuity you know, with a past so that, you know, the patterns, the good patterns of law and story and creation, they can be maintained through these, hey, phase shifts. Um, sorry, I throw in a bit more meta language from <laughs> my complexity brothers um, there. But, yeah, through these phase shifts, there are things that are, you know, retrieved forward 
And it's kind of like that's one of our big roles as custodians is to retrieve forward the good story, is to identify wrong story and leave it behind. It's to create cautionary tales as well of where things went wrong. And you leave these seeds. So I, I keep coming back to how story is really important. You know, good story, strong story, right story. And that story, to come back to emergence again, that story has to be emergent. Things can't be designed by singular geniuses. These authors and thinkers that we keep trying to identify and follow, like they're somebody, you know, they're, they're not. If they're coming up with anything useful at all, that's coming out of a collective and it's just coming, you know, through them, you know, that's coming out of a connected, grounded, place-based, you know, community of thinkers. And I can see attempts of that being done, you know, across all these, all these groups that are kind of loosely affiliated. But if you look at the things that work and that align up with the proposed metaphysics, it's kind of like, this is approximating, you know, something that's moving towards what what does work and what does foster emergence because that's all you can do you can't freaking design it that's why we're supposed to be custodians not bloody you know terraformers um you know everyone look for solution 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 it's like well yeah no that's not how it works we're not smart enough are you ever tempted to sort of want to wade in and like steer this emergence and go, could we hurry this up? Could we could we stop fixating on the psychedelics over here? Could we stop meditating so much and doing so many ice baths? Could we could we start to actually get a little bit more honest about our adherence to linear thinking? You can hear the judgment in my tone, even with my 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 good mates, and I, I freaking love those guys. You know, in that space, you know, I'm still being judgy. And they do it too. And I don't know, my, my struggles with, like, you know, judging people of going in weird directions, trying to find their feet with, you know, what used to be called woke stuff, which it's just, you know, only really shitty people call it woke anymore. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I certainly, I cert I'm really judgy about the salt baths, kind of, you know, crystal dolphin bloody etc crowd like I, I see them just as as being like you know half a degree off fascism anyway most of the new age community because they very quickly over covid did they find themselves sitting in drum circles with canadian truckers <laughs> so saying some really racist shit you know and they've had all this training through yoga you know there's training in like hindu fascism and hindu nationalist you know, um, fucking warrior poses <laughs> and the pedagogies of, of yoga gurus, like, you know, giving them this fascist exclusionary paradigm, you, you know, it, it's there. This caste system wound its way into the sort of metaphysics of the West in a, a continuing dialogue, which is still going on today with some pretty shitty Eastern philosophies too. So, you know, mm. your new age people are just half a step away from Mussolini, like all the time. It doesn't take much to tip them that way. And they get really weird, really fast. And see, you see my disdain coming through in my voice there. I have the same exclusionary kind of thing going on. I'm half a step away from, you know, I mean, how much pressure would there need to be on my life? How much threat would there need to be to my kids or that I perceived before I sort of started saying everyone with a dream catcher should be shot? You know, we're all not far off it all the time. It's that fascist turn is is, is real close because we're living within a, a, this competition-based economy, you know, where the only way we can feel safe and still feel like we belong is to form communities of exclusion and privilege. And we're all trying to do that all the time. You know. It's another example of trying to overlay simplicity onto complexity, you know, and we wonder why we get it all so wrong, you know. It, we're trying to solve complexity with simplification and then it just makes it a whole new stratosphere of complexity. You know, I mean, we've covered quite a lot of ground here and it's quite challenging stuff, especially for people who are finding some of the terminology difficult. But one anecdote in your book that I found really helpful, if you wouldn't mind just sort of speaking to this, that sort of explains how complexity thinking can look at, at a problem. And 
I think I have this right, you took a bunch of kids to go and look at a collapsing seawall and, you know, there was I think it was a bunch of high school kids and you got them to apply some complexity, Indigenous knowledge to perhaps solving what could be done with this collapsed seawall. And there was one kid that had walked off from the group and he looked like he was doing nothing. He was just staring out to sea. And you went over to him and asked him what was going on. Are you able to just sort of talk through uh, what he said? And, and I think it's a good way of explaining how complexity understanding can work. Oh, my goodness, that's reaching back. Yeah, uh, that little fella, bit bit of a genius, but, you know, nothing unusual. <laughs> you know, in, in our way, if, if we still, if you're still raised with access to some culture, some story, some land, some land-based activity, you know, you, you have this. And, you know, he was he was talking through, well, there's those she-oaks there, you know, and the she-oaks in that clump down at the coast there, that means the fresh water's flowing in there. That underground, that there's fresh water going in to the coast there. Now look what happens to the sand there, you know. So these patterns of sand movement with that mingling of fresh and salt and these tides and the winds coming in from the west there, now look. You know, <laughs> that's where it's supposed to go. And then it goes out there and then it comes back around just inside that headline, headland there and cycles back along. You know, there's new sand on the beach every day. Then just going, okay, now look at that spit. There's like all these spits been built, you know, further up. And they're there to stop the flows of sand, keep the sand on the beach because there are skyscrapers and you know, that are kept there to, you know, increase the value of the real estate and the developments there. So it's like they're like, well, I don't want my sand going to someone else's beach. <laughs> so yeah. then then he's like pointing out, so look at those boats out there. What are they doing? Well, they're dredging sand and they're pumping it up onto the beach to maintain this real estate. Now, further up the coast, they're dredging the sand, but they're not pumping it back up on the beach because that's where all the poor people live. They're actually taking that sand. You know, uh, and then I was mm. filling in all his blanks there, talking about the, um, you know, how sand is the largest and most mined, most extractive resource on the planet, because you can't have a building without it. That's your concrete. You know, needs all that sand. Yeah. So you know, then he's talking about like, all, all, so all those buildings then, if they're made of made of sand, you know, so even the glass is made out of sand, and most of the structure, you know, it's like he, he sort of basically showed over time where that's all going, particularly with, you know, the sand being dredged further up and then, of course, all the sand closer to the beach slumping down into those holes. It's like before the sea levels rise with climate change, it's like all this coastline is going to slide into the sea anyway and all those all those buildings are going to go back where they come from on the bottom of the seabed. It's something of a metaphor for so much of where we're at in the world, you know, and I think the other kids were designing, I don't know, better seawalls, higher seawalls, various dredging techniques, and this kid just identified if we just left it alone, it would balance itself out. And I think that's so much of what we're talking about. He didn't ha come up with an innovation or a design. He just said, it's all fucked. He said, well, it's all fucked. And I ended up giving an A-plus anyway because he had such a good freaking analysis of the situation no one else did. Uh, he didn't actually design anything, but he did design and map a really good analysis of the problem. And he just came to the conclusion, you're not going to design your way out of this. This coastline is going to change. And, you know, it'll write itself eventually, but you're not going to get to keep your real estate. Um, <laughs> you know, there's all these people, like all these, so it's a lot of Aboriginal kids there too, you know, and they're all trying to design solutions to protect all this settler real estate um, that's killing everything. <laughs> you know, that's two-thirds yeah. of all the world's capital is, is real estate, is land. I've identified real yeah. estate as the leverage point. Yeah. You get rid of the capacity for people to financialize the ownership of land, and to speculate on that, you get rid of that mechanism, things come good. But I, I, I believe you're going to need a massive collapse of a lot of institutions and a lot of ecosystems, um, a lot of food supply chains before that ends up being a thing. Because these, you know, there's more soldiers in private armies now than in, in than in state 
state militaries, you know, um, and these billionaires aren't going to let go of the shit that <laughs> without a fight. So, I mean, I, I think long after the institutions are gone, there's still going to be, you know, all the, the only law that will be left is property law and that will be enforced, you know, by warlords, oligarchs <laughs> and shit. So shit will have to go feudal for a bit. But the good thing about feudalism is that before the enclosure of the commons, you know, serfs didn't mind being serfs too much. It's like render under Caesar the shit that be Caesar's, but we still got our commons here, which will keep us alive. You know, I think people on the ground, they find their ways around these things and they, they discover and rediscover commons and, uh, and common care. And, you know, and the land speaks and the pattern moves and uh, people remember who they are, you know. This always happens un under the machinations of the powerful. Wh who'd have thought that that <laughs> you know we get to a state where like you know feudalism looks good? This is like a, a, people were healthier. I mean, child infant mortality was was not good <laughs> in Europe, but it's uh, people were a lot healthier and lived a lot longer and um, had a lot more agency. As a freaking medieval peasant, <laughs> people have now. If I want to live in a tiny peasant's cottage and grow my own veggies and, and run a few chooks, I have to be a freaking multimillionaire now. If I want the extraordinary privilege of that amazing lifestyle of just being a medieval peasant, I go. I got to get myself into that into that top five percent. And what's really interesting in the meantime, we've got people like Stephen Pinker and Bill Gates telling us, you know, life today under this capitalist system where we're so removed, you've never had why, than it was why back are then. people complaining? You've never had it better. It's never been better. Go for a jog. Think about it. How many TVs do you have? In the 1920s, how many TVs did they have in the average house? Zero. So stop complaining. All these poor people, do you know how many televisions they have, how many screens they have in their house? You know, it's fuck you. I didn't know Stephen Pinker was South African. What's this accent? He's not. His attitude is South African. Hey, I realise that I've taken up a bit more time than I said I would, but um, I guess, yeah, I'm just trying to think of a way to close this up, Tyson, but, well, how do you reckon? I'm going to put it to you. How do you reckon we should wind this up? Yeah, look. We've, we've got no good stories. There's no good stories. That's the stories we've got. We've got stories of white grievance and white fantasies of, of punishing people that they imagine have stolen their privilege from them as they can't imagine why their system's winding down. So, you know, we, we only have stories of white grievance. These are the dominant stories on the planet right now. So, um, you know, lean into it. I get, no, I'm only joking. Um, what are you doing? What, what am I doing? I, I'm just, in October, my new book will come out, Right Story, Wrong Story, and it's trying to give people tools to to navigate the, you know, information landscapes, but more the narrative landscapes that, that tell your evolving culture what it is. It tells you who you are and where you are, you know. It's, it's finding ways to engage with that process of narrative narrative creation that we're all involved with all, all the time and try to figure out, what you can trust and how you can trust it you know so it's it's navigating information landscapes narrative landscapes so that's what we need we need good story we need good cautionary tales going yeah. forward and we need to retrieve forward the the, the proper good stories with the old law that will still mm. uh, carry us forward into the future well listen i'm gonna get, you get back to those kids i really appreciate your time and yeah i i'll look out for that book and i'd love to have you back on you know post october so we can talk about that that'd be awesome no worries okay catch you later as per the invite or perhaps the warning i issued at the top of this interview i sat through that conversation witnessing my discomfort and my need to lasso things into linear shape at several points. I have to say I grappled with how much to step in or not step in because the point is we are at a juncture in our emerging where we are still trying to remember the complex patterning we are part of. We are craving joining the natural laws but we're just not there yet. We still need rational boxes, you know, those closed systems. So I'll allow myself to indulge us all here with a few roundup, linear-like take-homes. 
So fundamentally, the world does feel out of balance, right? So there's this emu idiotic energy running around or narcissism and it's it's rampant. You know, I think we can probably agree on that. Our culture's checks and balances on this emu energy have eroded. And so what we have instead is a bunch of what Indigenous cultures called cursed thinkings, you know, where we try to force fit onto the natural laws of the universe, things like the supremacy or our supremacy over nature, like owning things and hoarding things, like destroying our habitat, our home, like trying to block the flow of life's patterns. Now, Indigenous knowledge could indeed help us to return to more balanced ways, I think, by encouraging us to quit the objective observer stance and to join the nodes, get into the muck and mire of the complexity amid the interdependence and build a familiarity with complexity and with the idea of emergence and an an unfurling of idea on idea in collaboration with all the voices, hearing all the views, embracing all levels of engagement. The other take-home is this idea of moving on from the apocalypse or from the various crises that, you know, we've been told are on the horizon. There will be a more important phase than the apocalypse itself, a clean-up a transition, some call it adaptation. How are we going to emerge into this next era? How are we already emerging? Do we just not step in and try to steer it into something linear? Do we sit patiently and accept the messy, grippy, resistant way we're going about it at the moment and see all of it as wild and precious and emerging? I am still trying to grapple with all of this, with that conversation with Tyson, with the questions I pose. So let's just say this conversation, this idea is to be continued. I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.